Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. America was first introduced to him in December 2001. He became known as the American Taliban, and he was just released from prison a few days ago. John Walker Lynn was just released after serving 17 years of a 20-year sentence for providing support to the Taliban. We spoke to John Woolfolk, he's a reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, to talk about who the American Taliban is and the big question, how does a former jihadist get integrated back into society? There are conflicting stories about him. What we do know is his background. He grew up in uh, originally from the Maryland area, came of age and went to high school in Marin County. And during that time, when he was about 16 years old, he decided to convert to Islam. And his parents were supportive of that. This was all in the late 90s, this before 9-11 and all that. And when he was 17, he wanted to uh, travel to the Middle East, to the country of Yemen, to study the Koran. He did that for about nine months and came back. And after about a year back home, went back out first to Yemen and then to Pakistan and ended up in Afghanistan. And then his parents lost touch with him for a few months. And then there's 9-11 and suddenly, you know, where is he? Where is he? And then, you know, the war starting in October of that year, Operation Enduring Freedom, and they're wondering where he is. And the next thing they hear, getting a call from a reporter and from CNN that had been tipped that there was an American who was captured with him. It was about 80-odd Taliban fighters who had staged an unsuccessful escape or riot at a prison camp. And it was among them. And they interviewed him and everything. And so he suddenly he splashed on the screens of everybody's television across the country as the American Taliban. That's uh, when we first were introduced to him in December 2001. And, December and, 2001. And for anybody yeah. that remembers those pictures, I mean, he was all dirty, his hair, you know, he had the beard, everything. There was all sorts of pictures. There was pictures of him like naked, strapped to a, a gurney with tape and things like that. And this was where all the murky stuff happens. He was captured right after 9-11. Do we know if he had anything to do with any of that planning? Or, or I mean, he wasn't involved in any of the planes or anything, but what was he involved in while he was there with the Taliban? You're right. That's where it gets murky because he originally was charged. Right? He was indicted on 10 counts, including planning to kill Americans and all kinds of terrorism-related charges. And then less than a year after we first heard of him, suddenly the, the government cuts a plea deal. He'll plead out to two counts, relatively modest ones. One was violating a uh, Clinton-era executive order against dealing or supporting the Taliban, and the other was carrying explosives in the course of doing that, in this case, a rifle and grenade. But he never went to trial, so no one was ever able to probe his involvement in either 9-11 or even in the prison uprising, which resulted in the first American combat casualty, Johnny Mike Spann, yeah. a CAA officer who it turned out had interviewed him just moments before. His family in particular is not happy at all 
that uh, no. Lind is going to be released. Yeah. No, they are not. And since he's gone away and into a federal prison, he's moved around to a few and is finishing his time at prison in Indiana. But since then, he's not communicated at all publicly. I think for much of the time he was in there, I understand that he was under some sort of order from the prison bureau that he could not communicate externally. I'd read some articles that said he had been told that he couldn't communicate. When we reached out to him and his family in the last couple of weeks trying to see if they would speak to us, they told us, the Bureau of Prisons told us that he was not forbidden to talk talk to us, but that he was declining interviews. Well, his family and his attorneys also would not comment. So we haven't heard directly from him since the day he was sentenced when he did read a statement in which he renounced terrorism. But since he's gone into prison, the only window into his mindset has come either from sympathetic articles through his parents and defense team revealing sort of his thoughts to them or comments to them generally either at the time of his sentencing. And then there have been these two leaked reports Reports yeah, that's that's the, interesting. His parents, just for his parents' part, they said that he wanted to help the Taliban fight injustice by their Afghan enemies, not necessarily kill fellow Americans. And as you mentioned, there was these two leaked reports. And that's the big mm-hmm. question. Is he still a threat? And in these two reports, there was things that saying that he still said stuff that he might be supporting the Islamic State. And so it's unclear as to where his mindset is. And there's lawmakers that are very concerned about this, saying, you know, what are we doing to reform these former jihadists? How do we get them reintegrated back into Mm -hmm. society? That's the big question right now. Unless he says something after his release, and we, we don't know where he will be going. The prison bureau won't discuss it without his permission. He apparently hasn't granted it. So we don't know where we will, he will end up. At one point, he was considering, or his father was encouraging him to consider relocating to Ireland. And that apparently fell through after a fallout with his lawyer over his parent refusal to renounce all forms of atrocities or something. That's via these leaked documents that we not been able to get any further information on them other than what's printed. So we don't know. He's obviously changed so much over the years. I'm sure a lot of people don't even know what he looks like or, or would recognize him again. He's 38 now. Mm-hmm. Under all the conditions of his release, he's going to be under three years of supervision. He can't have mm-hmm. online communications in an, any language other than English. Obviously, he can't communicate with known extremists or possess or view terrorist material. I mean, he's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. How do you reintegrate this guy into society? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on him. Yes, at least for three years. John Wolfolk, Mm -hmm. reporter for the San Jose Mercury News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the stories we've been following for a while is that of the Nexium sex cult led by Keith Raniere. His trial is currently underway, and the testimony that's being shared about him is pretty unreal. It's shedding more light on the practices of that group and also what went down when Keith Raniere was arrested. Just before he would engage in group sex with some of his slaves, federal agents busted in to arrest him and he hid in a walk-in closet. He left the woman there to cover for him. We spoke to Pilar Melendez. She's a reporter for the Daily Beast who's been in court witnessing some of this testimony. For more on this, to break it down. The third day of testimony, 
which just speaks to the insurmountable amount of evidence that the prosecution has. She just missed her direct, which is pretty wild. But basically, she went into detail about the moment where Keith and Yuri got arrested, which I've never seen reporting on any of it before. They were all in Mexico. As you may know, Keith Ranieri, at the start of 2018, started going to Mexico. And around November 2017, he went and never came back. So he was in Mexico, and a bunch of his slaves that were associated with the sex cult group DOS, iteration of Nexium had gone for recommitment ceremony to show Keith Raniere that no matter what, it doesn't matter if the federal agents are after you, we are committed to you, we're committed to DOS, and we're going to show that commitment in a recommitment ceremony that will feature group sex, which Lauren Soldman mentioned multiple times in her testimony that she was not comfortable with. It was something that was kind of sprung up on her by another slave, and she felt like she didn't have a choice but to give in because everyone else made it seem like it was her problem and not a problem in itself. Yeah, some of this testimony um, is really yeah. the stuff that movies are made of. So they're there preparing Definitely. for this recommitment ceremony when another slave comes in and yells, the police are here, the police are here. And Lauren Salzman, for as uncomfortable as she was in a lot of stuff, she was still sold on this whole thing. She said her first inclination was to protect Keith. And what was the first thing that he did when the police came knocking? He went running into a walk-in closet. It was pretty astonishing to see her recount this story and Keith just glaring at her across the courtroom, making him sound like the biggest, the biggest wimp in the whole world. Her first instinct was to barricade herself in the master suite with Keith. And his first instinct was to not climb out of the window and try to escape, but to hide in a walk-in closet and make her deal with the federal authorities, who she mentioned had multiple machine guns ended up kicking down the door, putting her on the floor, and he just wouldn't come out until she called his name and said that she needed him to come out now. He eventually did. But it's pretty astonishing. Someone who talked about men empowerment and basically enslaved women for over a decade, his first instinct was to have a woman protect him. This whole Nexium group started off as like a self-help group type of thing, and that was the outside yeah. face of this. And behind all of this was this weird sex cult, master-slave relationships that Keith Rainieri exactly. had with all these women. And it was like a pyramid scheme. I mean, Lauren, some point she said she had about 22 slaves under her. So she was very complicit in a lot of the things that were happening. Tell us a little bit about her involvement and how she got branded when she got into the DOS group and then how she got other people in there. Because there was like five different stages of initiation for this. Her mother actually brought her into Nexium when she became the co-founder when Lauren was 21 years old. And her relationship with Keith went from being mentor to boyfriend about six years into her progress at Nexium. And when in 2015, when Keith Ranieri began to start talking about this secret society, sorority as he called it, Lauren was one of the first eight women that were inducted into the ceremony. And the way that DOS worked, which is very sneaky, is they were would ask women for collateral to hear this great new organization that being started up in Nexium. They would give them collateral, collateral being a naked photo, a letter saying that they committed a crime, a letter bashing their family, anything that would make have incentive to follow through with whatever they said they were going to do because the consequences of this collateral would be far worse. So then after that would happen, they would tell them the project, the Master Slave Program, which doesn't really make any sense to me now. And I, I think Lauren, when she was explaining it, really understood the inconsistencies of having a Master Slave Women's Organization. Right. But she was one of 
the first member, so she's technically a first-line slave. And she's a first-line slave with Smallville actress Allison Mack, Battlestar Galactica actress Nikki Klein, and a couple others that are going to be huge factors of this trial. And she got branded. So the branding aspect was more Keith Raniere's way of putting his stamp on DOS without having a forward front face of DOS. He's technically the grandmaster, meaning that he is the number one master. And then from him... He has the first line slaves, and then from them, again, another beautiful pyramid scheme. The psychological component that was going on with all these people, one of Miss Salzman's other tasks was to edit the teachings of Ranieri, kind of like his manifesto, talking about how the best slaves derive the highest pleasure from being their master's ultimate tool. It's just incredible, all the things that were going on. You've been in the court there. You've put eyes on him. What's his reaction throughout this whole process? You know, it's been interesting. I feel like he has been glaring a lot at Lauren Salzman, who was somebody that he had more than a decade long relationship with. You can tell she's very flustered by it. He is flanked by lawyers on both sides, only speaks to them, but has been very open about the fact that he is not happy that Lauren's talking. Pilar Melendez, reporter yeah. for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The biggest political story of the week is the fight between President Trump and House Democrats. Nothing is getting done right now. There was supposed to be a meeting on infrastructure. It ended up with a press conference in the Rose Garden where the president said he was not going to work with Democrats until they stop investigating him. We spoke to Daniel Littman, reporter for Politico, for more on this big walkout by the president. Democrats should have known that they were walking into the setup, given that no Republicans were invited. And they had prepared a podium in, I believe it was the Rose Garden, where it said no collusion, no obstruction. And it was ready for Trump to come out there and say that Democrats should choose between investigations and legislation. They can't do both. And it was quite a remarkable scene where he didn't even shake their hand when he went into the meeting. And then Kellyanne Conway and Nancy Pelosi fought at the end of the meeting after Trump stormed out. Trump didn't even give Democrats a chance to talk. So this is something that, you know, it's not a good day for Washington, D.C. and the country when the Speaker of the House has to say, well, I'm praying for the United States of America and I'm praying for the president. Earlier in in the day, Nancy Pelosi had a meeting with Democrats. Impeachment talk has been the buzz going around. Speaking to reporters after, she said that she does believe the president is gauged in a cover-up. Uh, we believe that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States. And we believe that the president of the United States is engaged in a cover-up. Reports have said that the president was pissed about that. And that's probably what led him to orchestrate this short-lived meeting that happened. And the meeting had been planned for weeks, apparently, but he was so mad about what happened and the, you know, being accused of a cover-up. That was one of the first things that he said, I don't do cover-ups. I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. I don't do cover-ups. Yeah, and Democrats raise the point that they'll have to see from Robert Mueller if he believes that to be the case, given that there are these credible allegations of obstruction of justice, even though none of them were actually charged. And Democrats will also note to reporters and all of us in the media that there was investigations going on three weeks ago when they had a positive meeting about policy issues with the president, and he didn't really mind then. And so Democrats are saying, why now? Are you just because of that phrase that Pelosi said about uh, she believes there was a cover-up. This is one of those situations where really nobody looks good walking away from this. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, they're saying they're doing the work that Congress needs to be doing, looking into the president, but, you know, saying, oh, 
I'm praying for him. Sounds a little condescending sometimes. The president on his part going into the meeting, setting them up that way, saying, I'm not going to work with you guys. And then rushing right out to a pre-planned press conference that was set up right there. You know, nobody looks good in these situations. And for the public, it really frustrates people because they want stuff to be getting done. But these people that are working, supposed to be working together, just can't get it done. This is a critical issue that every American is affected by infrastructure. And so this is something that's been ignored by both parties for years. Obama tried to take a piece of it with the stimulus, but that wasn't true infrastructure. There was a lot of projects, but it wasn't a a package solely devoted to infrastructure. There was a lot of different components of that. And it holds back the economy. If it costs more money to go on highways and if trains are slow or bridges don't work or they can't carry the weight of trucks carrying goods across the country, that has real-world GDP implications and it ultimately affects the number of jobs that we have. And so... Obviously, Americans are pissed off when they go to an airport and it's clogged and the, it seems like a no-brainer, especially with China spending so much money on infrastructure. But Democrats aren't eager to give Trump a win and Republicans, they have their own issues in terms of funding. They don't want to spend a ton of, mo- of public money, but there's only so much that public-private partnerships can actually do. I'm sure what happened between the president and Democrats is really just going to ramp up the fighting. So we'll keep monitoring the situation. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And the very next day, everything did ramp up. The president and Nancy Pelosi continued to fight. My producer, Miranda, joins us for a little bit more on this. It just devolved into craziness. She's calling for an intervention to save the nation from the president. And the president is saying that Nancy Pelosi is crazy. What's going on with these two? They did a press conference on Thursday afternoon. They each got their own turn to speak in front of a gathered group of reporters. And Nancy Pelosi went first and she was kind of shrugging questions off. She was acting kind of sassy, according to some reports. Then Trump got his turn. He was calling her crazy Nancy. Up until this point, Oscar, he had said he wasn't going to come up with one of his um popular nicknames. Right. And I guess he decided on Thursday to name her Crazy Nancy and telling reporters that she was a mess. We all wish we can be speaking of something more substantive, but sometimes these fights are just too funny to pass up. Let's play a little clip of Nancy Pelosi. This is when she was saying that the president just took a pass and we need an intervention. I pray for the president of the United States. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention for the good of the country. The president said, if you don't um, if you don't stop investigating me, if you don't stop honoring your oath of office, I can't work with you. That's basically what he's saying. Maybe he wants to take a leave of absence. I don't know. I mean, she's throwing all these barbs out there, basically saying that he's just not up to the job. So the president, on his part, he had another presser. He had a lot of the cabinet members hanging around next to him. And it's just a funny visual. He calls Sarah Sanders, Sarah, come over here. Everybody's saying I was so crazy at the meeting. How crazy was I? What was my tone? The narrative was I was screaming and ranting and (laughs) raving and it was terrible. I watched Nancy and she was all crazy yesterday. She put the hands and everything. She reminded me of uh, Beto. (laughs) Maybe a little bit worse. But just out of curiosity, you were there. What was my telling yesterday at the meeting? Uh, very calm. I've seen both, and this was definitely not uh, <laughs> angry or ranting. Just hilarious. What was my tone? Please tell everybody. It's just great stuff. In the backdrop of all of this is the House Democrats just waiting 
for Nancy Pelosi to say yes on impeachment. So we're going to have to keep on watching this because it's not going to go anywhere. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.